Hello and welcome to another edition of the From the Clubhouse podcast. As ever, brought to you by our sponsors, TaylorMade. My name's Tom Irwin and I'm joined on this rainy October Thursday by everyone's favourite ray of sunshine, Steve Carroll. Winter is coming, Tom. It is a bit, isn't it? I was uh, I was driving here this morning thinking, I wonder if we should talk about the joys of winter golf, but it's too early in it. We need to stave that off a bit longer. There's not a lot joyful about winter golf. Come on. We've done we've definitely done this on the podcast before. We will do it again, but there's a lot to be enjoyed about winter golf, Steve. You know as well as I do. I, I, I knew the weather had turned because I played in a competition on Saturday. Um, here we go. Here we go. He's straight in, straight in. <laughs> and the winning score was 38 points. And I just thought the, the weather's turned. <laughs> there's no there's no 45 points here now, is that everyone's struggling round. So which way round do you want it? I thought anyone gets a sniff of 40 and you're like, oh, everyone's a handicapped bandit, blooming WHS. 38's not enough. No, that is exactly the sort of scoring I, I like to see. Make it tough, make it hard. Right. It's good. I'm, ju- I'm just saying it's different. The sort of Jeff Boycott of Stableford. Is that how you'd like to see yourself? <laughs> Only 36 should win, yeah. And how many did you get, Steve? Uh, <laughs> um, uh, 31. 31? Uh, and I finished mid-table, actually. Um, it was a really, really tough day. There was... Um, so I was playing in my first trophy competition at Close House. So I've um, I've joined Close House as a country member, rejoined Close House as a country member. This time I can play in competitions. So this was the first competition I'd ever played there. I really liked the way that, they, that it was set up. Actually, um, there was. Should I talk about? Yeah, let's let's get into it a little bit. There was um, a starter on the first tee. So we played the Philly course, which is not the the Colt Colts the championship course. The Philly course is the second 18 at Close House. And it's the one I'm massively emotionally attached to because it was the old Newcastle University golf course and I went to Newcastle University. So I I played a lot of my golf there. I need to play some Simon Mayo sort of... Down memory lane, absolutely. Sort of sepia-toned. Here we go. We're now... Yeah, anyway, sorry. Well, I mean, I'm prepared to pay. I am paying a, a significant membership fee for those for those tones so it's entirely appropriate uh, anyway um so we played so we played this competition they're the starter on the first tee um which was really really good um free water free banana so that was good now there's some there's some expenses like taken care of straight away the result right was basically in my email box within about i mean i teed off quite late i teed off at sort of 12 because obviously close house is 90 miles from my house um so i teed off at 12 and the results were back in my email before you got home. as i as i got home well i basically opened up my email and there the results were which i thought was like massively impressive what's your point to get the turnaround what's your point caller that you're sort of you're amazed at the modern world well, I, I don't see it massively often. I mean, I've been used to, you know, I'm from the school of, and I'm sure you are as well, you know, you played a competition on Saturday and you were lucky if you used to get the result by Tuesday. Um, so, you know, like live leaderboards and this is all brilliant stuff. It's a good point, actually. It's interesting that you, you say you had 31 points and you finished middle of the pack. Like, I am amazed at how shit people are at golf because I will often come off in a competition round and think, oh, honestly, that was just embarrassing. And you've got like 27 or something. And you're never the worst, are you? 
it was incredibly difficult there as well. I mean, there's been a lot of rain um, in Northumberland, Newcastle over the past couple of weeks. So conditions were wet. And then we played two of the hardest holes on the course, uh, 14 and 16, um, really long par fours. And we played them into sort of like a three-club wind by this point. I mean, I hit a six iron um, on the 16th. I absolutely nutted it and it didn't go 120 yards. Didn't reach the green for 120 yards. And then we played the 18th, which is an uphill par four with a sort of uh, a, a kind of um, a brook, if that's the right word, immediately in front of the green. Um, I had 160 yards and it was driving rain at that point. We we kind of avoided the rain until the 18th, so I blobbed that hole. Um, it was just really tough conditions. So, And it's a golf course that people think it's very – people look at the yardage of it and it's like five – it's like 6,000 yards flat off the whites. And people think it's dead easy, but the slope rating for that course is one three eight right. for a six thousand yarder. So, like, do the math. It's it's tough. It's good. I wonder if I might have to update my references. You know, because Simon Mayo, like, I mean, that's a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah, I think he's moved radio stations now. Yeah, I was trying to explain to uh, the lads in the office this morning about history today. Do you remember that from the May White House experience? I do remember history today. Was, <laughs> it's, it's still funny now. It's still funny I now. I know, yeah. And it had that. See that. See that. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. That's good then. And you also got a W, didn't you, on Sunday? In the battle of in the battle of the office. Yeah. Me v Bull. Yeah. You smashed him, apparently. I didn't smash him, but I played some it was it was quite tight for a while. And then um, I hit the ball really well, actually. So I shot, uh, we played a general play around. I recorded my score for the penultimate time. This weekend will be the last time I put my score in for handicap. Um, as in, I do it every time. Um, and um, I played all right, shot 80, which is good. That's like plus 10. So when are we going to get this sort of reveal of um, what the net effect on your handicap has been of being put in every card? When's that well, I mean, we can we can do it in the next podcast. So, just to remind listeners, um, I agreed. Like Tom betted me to it, and then basically he's never played golf for the rest of the year. But me and Tom would put all of our car all of our cards in for the rest of the season, so until the end of October. Now, you may be going. It's not the end of October. Why are you finishing this weekend? It's because um, I have some commitments over the next two weeks. I can't play golf again until November. By which one you mean which is my- Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough, parent visit, my daughter's birthday—all of these things are going to stop me playing golf. So my last, my last score, my, the last time I'm going to play a scoring round is going to be Saturday. So I'll be able to give you a full debrief next week if you want. I'm looking forward to it. Steve's gone and he's only gone and done it. So I haven't played any golf. Been to uh, the golf courses near me with my kids a couple of times. Um, never ceases to amaze me how they just sort of ape the behaviours of like adult golfers. Like my oldest particularly just sort of bemoans his bad golf and you have to sort of point out to him that he's done literally no practice in how many weeks since we last went, but still it has these huge expectations that he's going to be sort of on telly with his golf. So just a proper golfer then. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, exa- exactly the same as every other golfer. Amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, and I'm off to Lisbon next week to the international golf travel market and I'm going to play Penna longer. Heard of that? Are you I haven't, but are you going to put a continental score in? What? You haven't heard of Penna longer? 
No, I'm not. I'm not really that au fait with. It's like a Portuguese um, golf institution, isn't it? It's like had European tour events back in the day. It's like proper classy sort of venue. I'm well looking forward to it. Apart from, it'll be a scramble. It'll take five hours, and for I'm trying to work out whether this is the first time I've ever done it. It can't be, but I've hired some clubs. Have you? Are you doing? Um, Par is your friend. Uh, I know. I've used clubs to hire, or is that is that question not related to? No, it's not related. So, Texas Scramble is like the worst format for a for for this event because it just. I mean, even at club level, Texas Scramble like takes forever. So what they do on the when I've played DP World Tour programs, what they do is they say par is your friend, so you can't have a score. Oh, yeah, you're just trying to get a birdie, basically, aren't you? Yeah. Exactly, and if you can't if you can't beat par, you just pick up, and at least it stops it being all of the day. I don't know, but what it will happen is there'll definitely be four first languages in our, four different first languages in our football. There'll be some very varied abilities. There'll be a lot of higher clubs, and it'll be a sort of pretty... <laughs> taxing experience i would have thought but anyway i'm looking forward to it be good um right what are we going to talk about today steve we've got two or three things we want to get stuck into i reckon we should start with is count back fair so this is we think this is going to be short and sharp don't we is this because you've got some very clearly defined views on count back no not at all it's because it's a it's a kind of reader comment um and they said readers wives there readers it's like a readers um <laughs> it's like a readers a reader's comment on Facebook. I don't know what you'd written about, but someone said, what about Countback? And with this person's point of view that Countback was stupid because it was pretty arbitrary and a fairer way of doing things to decide a competition result that was tied would be to um, award the competition to the person with the better gross score. Um, and therefore, in this person's eyes, who'd played the better golf on the day. I thought that's interesting. Uh, What's that noise mean? Because pro- c- c- the problem with giving it to the better gross score is it would almost always be the lower handicap that wins. Say you have a eight handicap and an eighteen handicap, the lower gross score is going to be the eight handicap with th- with thirty six points. So I think it probably goes. Look, th- there are some there are some things I don't like about countback, um, but. My, my my first thought when people argue about count back is how on earth are you going to sort out a Saturday Stableford, right? I mean, what we're going to do? Are we going to have if everyone if 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 we've got four people who've shot forty two points, are they all going to go out and play extra holes in a in a in a Saturday Stableford? I mean, let's let's be reasonable about it. No, um, so count back is probably the sort of best way of sorting it out. Um, let me give you some. Interesting countback information, shall I? Yeah, please do. So, okay, so everybody knows, right, that countback is generally about the back nine, right? So back nine, back six, back three, last hole, for example. What if, Tom, Mm. question for you, what if your back nines are completely tied? Back nine, back six, back three, back one. What do you do then if your entire back nine is tied? You toss a coin. You can get you're you're sort of reaching way ahead at the moment. That 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 you do get to that point, but what happens first? I thought that's exactly what you did do. I thought you just I thought you I thought that was it. I was I was actually gonna say what is the actual countback rule. I thought it was nine six three one coin coin toss. You can go front nine as well what? if your competition wants to. Yeah, you can go 
last six, last three, final hole of the front nine. Well, that is absolutely news to me. You can count back without having to play 18 holes. So, for example, I at, at Strensel, they do when it's really, really dark. Um, in the winter, they do a 16-hole winter competition. They cut out a couple of holes so everyone can try and get round. You can do a count back then. You just adjust the number of holes that you can use when matching scores. And then all of this, after all of this stuff, back nine, front nine, adjusted scores, if everyone's still tied, then yes, you can toss a coin. Have you Next noticed it? Decide, or you can you can call it a draw. You can at that point you can have a tie as well. It's, it's the 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 interesting thing about countback. I think is that your this is where um, terms of competition. I'm going to get technical on people for a minute. This is where terms of competition is really important because your club needs to have all of this sorted out. Um, so every time you have a competition, whether it be a board comp or a or a Saturday Stableford or a midweek Stableford, if you've got countback in there. Um, you need to have all these things written down so everybody knows what's going to happen if you can't split people. I don't think it should be uh, toss a coin, not least because it's impossible to say, isn't it? How hard is toin, coin, <laughs> coin toss to say? You can't even say it. Come on, that's what I mean. You can't, you it's impossible. That's what I, when I was little, I used to say par park instead of car park, and I've got the same thing going on here with coin toss. It's really difficult. And plus, I've, there are loads of other ways that I would have said would be much more fun, like you could do rock, paper, scissors for a start. That'd be quite good. At least that would involve an element of skill. You could, uh, a lot of clubs have yards of ales, don't they? So you could perhaps see you could drink a yard of ale the fastest. But it's not a rugby club, Tom. A quiz? A quiz. <laughs> Mastermind, your specialist subject is missed putts on the back nine. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or, I don't know, you could go to a vote. I've got a couple of other th- things to say about countback. Um, the first is, I think if you're gonna if you use count back properly, you really need to have divisions um, for your prizes. Otherwise, my view is that the nature of how those prizes are awarded can get a bit skewed. Whereas, it, whereas if you've got divisions and count back within divisions, I think it does provide a much more fair and equitable spread of prizes. And the second thing is as well. I mean, my my Strensel York. Um, they won't have count back for trophy competitions. So for even for pairs competition, there was a pairs competition, which was a trophy comp a couple of weeks ago, and um, it was a tie. And uh, there was an 18-hole playoff. So what they do is they basically say, if you have a tie and it's a trophy competition, there has to be one winner. Um, you guys need to go and do a playoff. You can do it within X amount of time of the competition finishing, which I think is a really good way, actually, of... Of, of keeping the integrity of your board, your big competitions. I don't think anyone is really happy with a trophy comp that's sorted out by back six or back nine. I know it's, I know it's there well, and see, it can be I, done that way, but it just, so, feels a bit, just feels a bit unwieldy. What format is that playoff? Is it like a full-on US Open 18-hole playoff? Yeah, so 18-hole, and it would be... I'd, I'd need to check the terms and competitions again because I, I just saw it and I just thought... I've seen it a couple of times now at York, and I think I've never come across anything like this before. It's always been countback, but I thought it was a really good way of doing it. So I imagine if it was like four-ball, better ball, it would be the same terms of the competition in which you'd played, so you'd carry, out, you'd carry it out in the same format. And I think that there's something quite... I mean, obviously, it's like really traditional. It's a bit old-style US Open, isn't it? Um, so it sort of harks back to the 
to the sort of sixties and earlier. But it is it is something actually I think that's really quite cool because as long as everyone's got the time to do it, um, there's something really authentic about it, isn't there? You, you've 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 won the competition by playing the best golf. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, the first thing I would say is I I can never ever get my head round. Um, how how much people care about this stuff that's the thing like it, at the end of the day when we all like winning competitions don't get me wrong but it is just supposed to be a bit of fun isn't it so i think getting triggered about what the count back rule is yeah um 18 hole playoffs like that is just bonkers like i've never it. i think it's, I think it's great I think- bonkers I think it's absolutely great. Apologies if I've got that wrong. It's just how I've perceived it when when sort of looking at the notes. But I but, but if it isn't if they're not doing that, they should because it's a it's an absolutely brilliant it's an absolutely brilliant thing. I think. Um, and then to, to your point, to your point, that person's played the best golf. I mean, that's just back to my argument that we have every time. We always get back to this that if you're going to just abandon handicaps, life would be a lot simpler, and then it would just go to the person who's played the best golf. Um, a lot simpler for you off one, I would imagine. Yeah, but the can you stop saying that? Because it's true. Can you not just talk about a sort of an ethereal, like low, a low mark or something? No, I like to. You know, I like to sort of target non-specific. Just because you'll be back at plus. Do you know what? I woke up this morning. I woke up this morning. And I thought, right, I'm going to start having lessons. I'm going to practice this winter. And then I started writing a text message to a teaching pro, and I didn't send it. But I think I am going to do that. Um. Anyway, the playoff rule, I'm saying it's fine as it is. Like, stop changing things. It's not a problem. It's the monthly medal. It's the Saturday Stableford. It doesn't really matter. We all know where we stand with the count back, apart from those of us that didn't. Uh, leave it as it is. I've got one other count back question for you. You'll like this. What do you do with count back if it's a multi T start? Say it's a shotgun. How do you sort count back out? You there? still do it on 1 to 18 is correct but it's back i mean it's always by nine first isn't it oh, it's usually by nine back first, of the anyway. net. I, I have actually seen this one in action i have at a former club a member who was starting at quite a difficult hole in a shotgun start asked asked if count back would change depending on where they began their final round yeah well actually asked that question why is that making you laugh because I just thought it was funny. I've started on the stroke one on the back nine, so can the count back change, please? Oh, yeah, well, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's good. That's the top level grubbing, that is, isn't it? <laughs> really grasping. You see, you say you say competitions are just a bit of fun. Does that sound to you like someone's having a bit of fun there? Uh, I think I've just sort of rounded on that point of view because I haven't won one for about a decade. The... Um, I, can't, I, I genuinely can't think of any other fairer way of doing it because if you're going to accept the fact that handicaps exist, which we seem to have to do, um, then you have to apply shots. And the idea is, I suppose, of the back nine being uh, viewed as more uh, fundamental than the front nine is that you have to sort of, the people who are being counted back are the people who are having to hold a score together when they know they're in contention. So I sort of like that bit. Uh, I think it's all right. I just leave it, just leave it alone. Man on Facebook. Uh, but I do think it's a missed opportunity for some uh, for some alternative methods of counting, of deciding the winner. Arm wrestle is, is a good favourite, isn't it? You could just have an arm wrestle. We used to sell a lot of things in my house by arm wrestle. 
PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, exactly. You could have you could have to do a short kind of presentation to the group about why you played the best golf. Maybe like greens in reg these days. That would be a good one. Strokes gained. Is that a weak lemon drink you're having there? This is um, so. Do you know we're having a podcast here? People can't actually see yeah, no, what I'm doing. Weak lemon drink is it's off. The, is it off the fast show? No, this is this is kind of a new sort of squash. I think it's called rocks or something like that. And the point of it is, my my wife has um, my wife has read that book about ultra high processed foods and has watched the TV programs has now gone like as far away as from processed foods as you can possibly do and obviously i don't drink tea or coffee but i do drink squash and squash if you think about like a lot of the brands it's very high processed and this isn't this is a version that's not processed but looks weak tastes weak and costs about four pounds a bottle uh does it taste like rock shandy it doesn't taste of much to be honest. Right. I was having this conversation. Have you ever had a rock? Do you know what a rock shandy is? I do not. Oh, this is interesting. So this is like a little test. Do you know what a captain special is? No. Nope. Do you know what a gunner's is? I do know what a gunner's is, but I couldn't tell you what it is. I've heard of it. I've seen it in a can. So I think you're probably, I think that means, I can't work out that, what, that, what that means. A while ago, there was a, um, a market research agency did a, uh, a survey to try and finally decide where the line was in the country where the north started and the south began right right and they said you could do it on prevalence of greg's versus pret amonjes mm. right so if you've got a gr- basically you've got a greater density of greg's you're in the north and if you've got a greater density of pret amonjes you're in the south I don't think I'm ever more than about ten minute walk from a Greg's. Right, but you are definitely so you are definitely in the north, right? And I bet you, I bet you haven't seen a Pret since last time you were in London. Uh, no, there's a Pret. There's a Pret in York. So you've got to take twenty minutes, haven't you? Twenty five minutes to get to a Pret. Anyway, that aside, I think there's a better test for it, and I think it is what you refer to that drink as. So a. A Gunners, which is, I think, its traditional name, is like Angostura bitters, soda, lemonade, blah, 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 blah. And it's like a golf club stalwart, isn't it? Like everyone's had one of these. But it changes name where you go. So I think if you are in the north, then it gets called a Captain Special. If you're in the sort of Midlands type of area, then it's called a Rock Shandy. And if you're in the south, it's definitely a Gunners. I also think it's kind of a bit of a... It's like a very much a kind of like... Uh, it's kind of exposes kind of class quite a lot. So you would definitely call it different things depending on the class you were born into. So it's puzzling that you have heard of a Gunners, none of the other two. So maybe you're either off the charts at the bottom. Do you really want? Do you really want me to explain this? Um, I used to work with a client um, in our who worked obviously in our company who made a drink called Gunners. That's the only reason I know what it is. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd have no idea what it is. So you're so you're basically so impoverished that you couldn't actually. You're not even on the you're not even the rock shandy. You just have in. Like, I just I don't want to I don't want to drink stupid golf drinks. Just give me a lager. Sorry, craft beer these days now, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Did you not do an article called "What Is Cummel" the other day? Well, I briefly looked at it. <laughs> And try and try to update it. Um, 
we're doing a massive update on some of our older articles on the website. We should explain that in context what? because we've we've changed our website. Um, and I was trying to find a picture of it, and I can't find a picture of it because it's such a stupid drink that no photography agency has a picture of it. It's not a stupid drink, is it? Clearly is, otherwise there'd be a ready supply of pictures of it, and there are apparently none in the United Kingdom. I'll tell you what it is. It's basically posh perno. What it is. What? What's perno? It's like aniseedy nonsense, isn't it, that you, oh, you sort okay. of think it's a good what? idea to have when you're out for some, no particular reason. Why would anyone want to drink licorice? I mean, like, ugh. Yeah. Anyway, uh, having ostracised the middle, the middle classes, the working classes, and the upper classes, <laughs> I think we should move on. Well, we've offended everybody liberally, so yeah. you know, there's no, there's, there's no. Um... I'll tell you what else is going to offend people. You've written about um, the pace of play, haven't you? Yes, it's not, um, it's not a new topic, is it? The pace of play. No, and I did think that when I was writing this piece, um, that I, like in in this job in journalism, if you you sort of know when you when you've been somewhere quite a long time when everything goes round in a circle and you realize that you've written about the same thing about three times or four times over half a dozen separate years and i definitely feel about that with pace of play it's, we've sort of exhausted this topic to death but anyway um there was some usga research um which was highlighted by a couple of other golf magazines and led to um a story that the usga had put in their members magazine called golf journal and it was talking about um the tees that people play from and their research they've done a lot of research they've crunched a lot of numbers to figure out what everybody already knew anyway and has said many times over many years which is people play tees that are largely too long 50 percent of players according to the usga pick tees to play that are too long for them this surprised me though according to that research 20 percent chose tees that were too short um which is a debate i think that often no one talks about everyone always talks about people playing from the wrong tees going backwards how the course is too long for them but Fewer people talk about tees being too short, and obviously the, um, the 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 issues that that brings in regards to design. So that's an interesting part. I don't know if we'll get into that. Anyway, so the, 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 all of this research was based around a seven iron, and you say, well, why a seven iron? And it's because most people, according to the USGA, know how far they hit a seven iron. There's a quote in this piece from Mike Wan, who's the USGA chief exec, I think, who said, with a driver, I'm probably plus or minus 20 yards. If I say I hit a 240, I know that I can actually hit a 260, but there are a lot of 220s in there as well. So if you ask me how far I've hit the driver, you might get this answer, you might get this answer, or you might get this answer. But he said, if you ask how far I hit my seven iron, I'm going to say 160. And he says that players will largely give a definitive answer about how far they hit the seven iron. So what they then did was they've translated those um, that seven iron distances that people hit into course length. So there was a, there's a table in this website. Um, I will put the, um, I'll put the story in the show notes so people can click on it and then they can click on the original article as well. And it basically said, if you hit your... Uh, I hit my seven iron 150, roughly. Uh, one one well, I know exactly. It's one four one carry one five one total. Um, so, I uh, they're basically saying, if your seven iron distance is one forty, your ideal length course is five thousand nine hundred to six thousand one hundred yards. 
And if you hit your 7955, then your average, your sort of best course length is between 6.4 and 6.6. And obviously it slides down and it slides up depending on the scale. Anecdotally, I can tell you that I think there's something to that um, because I certainly play my best golf and I've got the scores to prove it on courses that are between about 5,900 yards and 6.2. And that's because I hit my seven iron right bang in the two distances between there and and it's because largely when i play across that length i don't have to hit massively long irons in with my second approach i can hit driver seven iron driver six iron and so on so i think anecdotally there is something in that and then how does it come to pace of play so what 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 they're saying is that um they there was a florida club where T-based selection based on seven iron distances was brought in. And they said that the pace of play at that club was quickened by 15 minutes. Um, now, there's some obviously logical reasons as to why that might be. Um, obviously, if you're hitting shorter clubs, um, you are less likely, I think, to lose the golf ball. You, you can still lose the golf ball, obviously. But you're not if you're not stretching your abilities as much, it's harder to hit longer clubs, isn't it, up the bag? Um then you are you're probably not spending as much time looking for balls. You're probably hitting straighter shots. You're probably spending less time walking uh, or, or buggying around the course as well because you're playing from you're not always schlepping back to the back tees all the time. You might spend less time looking for golf balls as well because you're not quite as wide as you think you are. I mean, I don't think any of this stuff is definitive, um, but I did think it was an inter- interesting take both on the tee debate because we're always having the argument on this podcast aren't we Tom about people going too far back and how that makes golf difficult but also on the pace of play debate as well because if you can if you can choose a course based on your ideal seven iron length and it proves to be that you then hit you're hitting shorter clubs you're moving around quicker that's probably not a bad thing for a sport that takes four hours at the best of times as well well yeah, I mean, sorry, when I when when we have been having this debate previously, and people playing golf golf courses are too long for them. From my point of view, that's always been through the prism um, of pace of play. Like that's the sort of principal reason. Now, be that because it's just a longer walk from further back, so it takes longer, or because people are playing a course that's too long for them and therefore too hard, and therefore it takes longer. Um, I just think that's it. Just very 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 sensible i mean it's obviously all open to um people's bluster about how far they hit their seven iron um but i think it's like to have that kind of gauge and mike one's comments on driver are um particularly salient aren't they because that is probably where people are most uh guarded about their sort of hitting distance um the um the, there will be people who say oh 15 minutes so what right Oh, I think it's, I, th- I think it's a decent chunk of time um, because I don't just think about it as one fifteen minutes. I mean, obviously you'd have to average it, but I think about it as fifteen minutes every week. Well, that's an hour a month. That's half a day a year, <laughs> right? Well, I was I, that's interesting. I was going to say something different about it. Is that it's um, what I can't recall what the right expression is. Something about diminishing returns. My missus often says the thin end of the wedge. I never quite know what she means, but I think it's sort of relevant here that if you don't do something about pace of play to push back and get it going in the other direction, then where does that end? It just sort of will spiral out of control and we'll be playing golf and it'll take two days. 
it's a bit like the HS2 argument, isn't it? People are saying, why are we spending billions of pounds on getting people from Birmingham to London or Manchester to London 10 minutes quicker? Um, but I guess it's not about the 10 minutes now. It's about the crumbling infrastructure in 25 years' time, isn't it? So I think that anything you can do that is nibbling pace of play in the in the right direction, it's got to be a good thing. Um, and I just, I just, I don't know, like sort of sitting here at the minute as someone who's not playing very much. So the idea for me of going to try and play a golf course that's six and a half thousand or 7,000 yards long just does not appeal. But if you said you want to go and play off some winter tees at five, eight, 6,000, I'd be saying, yes, please. Because it's just funner. Even it's funner a word, more fun. More fun. There is yeah. more fun to be had. I, I, I left a golf course. Um, I let, I'll, yeah, I let, I, I played at Sandburn Hall in York. I was there for 17 years. I loved the people there. I was captain there. I left that golf course because it was too long for me. And I just got bored of playing it because by the, but after, after so long, I could play that golf course with my eyes closed. I knew what it was going to be every time. And that wasn't because I'd played it a billion times because I've played Strensel a lot of times. And that course still surprises me all the time. Um, I've played Close House a lot of times, both those courses. It still surprises me. It was the length of the golf course that was the thing that got me. It was 6,007, 67 off the whites. And I knew on every hole I was going to hit drive a five iron, drive a hybrid, drive a six. I, the, the, the par threes were long. Um, one of them was like 208 yards. I knew I was going to hit three wood on that every single time I played it. And, there, the, and it just got to the point where the length may, meant that there was not a massive amount of variety for me in how I played the golf. And golf has got to be a game of, it's got, it's a game of skill, but it's also got to be a game of surprise as well. Um, and there was no surprise left for me, for me in it because I knew first hole I was going to hit driver. I was going to hit on a par five. I was going to have to hit five iron. I was probably going to have to hit nine iron. Second hole, I knew I was going to hit driver. I knew I was going to hit seven. Third hole, driver hybrid. Fourth hole, driver five iron. Fifth hole, driver six iron. I knew, I, I, even now, I, I haven't been a member of this golf course for, what, coming on two years now, nearly three years. I can tell you on every hole which shot, which club I would have to take. And it was because of the length. It's not because... It's not because of... Um, it is obviously because of my ability, because clearly I can't hit the length required. But... It became. It just became. It, it became uninteresting. Yeah. So I don't know how you would how you'd go about sort of implementing um, something that the USJ are obviously advocating, but I guess it's it's something that if if people were being asked that when they were paying to play or registering for a competition or whatever else, that'd be a big help. But it just but, comes down to ego, doesn't it? It does. And it also comes back to another hobby horse of mine, which is competitions and the way that we make people play competitions. We force them to the very limits of the golf course all the time, which is not a, a, a strategy like this from the USGA does not fit that. Now it could because the world handicap system allows ease of easily for you to not easily, yeah, easily to have multi T events. Um, with adjustments 
um, which allow can allow people to play off whatever tees that they want. But clubs will not get their heads around this for competition. They just they don't think it should happen. They think right, we've got it must be a test. It must be at the very limits of the golf course. We must make it hard for people. Yeah, um, I like the mat and men. People think that that's proper. So the further back you go, is the more proper it is. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not suggesting that um, competitions being a test is wrong. I'm not. Not at all. Um, golf is not supposed to be. It's it's a challenging sport, right? It's not supposed to be easy all the time. Um, but if your if your whole club structure is built on making people play the golf course at its hardest for what how many weeks of the year, from April to October or whenever the season is every year, then you're never going to be able to properly implement something like the, what the USGA researchers suggested because golfers just are not conditioned for that kind of thing because the whole ethos is, right, you want to play a competition, get to the backs. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I think that that is sort of food for thought and it'd be interesting to see what people, how people, listeners and readers would feel about that if that when they arrived to play uh, at somewhere new or indeed their home course, that they were kind of asked their seven iron distance and then directed some some appropriate tees. Um, there's a little bit of that happens at the minute where people are often asked about handicap, aren't they? And, and there's, a, there's a few courses that are doing driver as well, um, driver distance. But as, as Mike has pointed out in that piece, I think the difference between driver and seven iron is it's it's a lot it's a lot easier to overestimate how far you hit your driver than it is how far you hit your seven iron because they go you know your seven iron obviously goes a much more compact distance for people doesn't it you know like like Mike's saying I can hit a driver two forty but I can also hit a driver one eighty or two hundred um, I've got anything within that within that thing yeah it's um. I think it's the direction of travel, isn't it? And I think it's the sort of thing that we'll see implemented more and more. Um, again, particularly because of the stuff that we've been writing about from the PGA survey about um, the average age of golfers. Like that is, we discussed this in the office yesterday. Um, and I do think it's kind of relevant to this that apparently the average age of a golfer um, is basically, there are more golfers who are under 45 than not under 45. Um, which obviously is in stark contrast to the, the numbers of members um, in that age profile. And I guess that this kind of thing, like people playing courses that are an appropriate length to them, which is going to help speed up the game, is probably going to be more appealing to, to that kind of population of people. That's remarkable, isn't it? That um, that if you think about actually the the demographics of a golf club, membership which is I, th- I think uh, I looked at some other research that said um, I think it's sort of like uh, I mean the, the, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head but the numbers of golf club members who were over 50 and over 61 I think it's like two-thirds and a third two-thirds of members are over 50 a third were over 61 and yet the culture of competition within a golf club is get to the back it's quite interesting isn't it yeah yeah it's interesting um so we were going to talk about the PGA, weren't we, or the PGA's members? Um, I, w- I was keen to talk about this because um, there's something hap- happening in my little life that um, is quite a big thing. So John Green, who is the uh, the club pro at um, Old Woodley, is stepping down. 
I mean, he'll have been he'll have been there. I mean, I'll have been at primary school probably when he started. All well, that. Was, or maybe not too maybe not too far off. I was trying to think about this in the context of internet memes. Um, so when in the run up to the Ryder Cup, people are doing things like the things that have happened since the US last won in Europe. So John Green's been the head pro at Old Woodley since 1989. Wow! So I was I was 12 in 1989. Um, I can't even work out how many years it is. It's a lot, isn't it? Like uh, 20, 34. Yeah, a lot. 34. Um, he is going to uh, still have a role at the club, which I think is still being defined. But he's going to be standing down from his traditional uh, head pro duties. And the, the, the chap at St. Ports, whose name I can't remember, is also stepping down, isn't he? Stepped down, okay. just recently stepped down. Andrew Reynolds, um, he'd been at St. Ports for 45 years. Which is, again, it is just bonkers, that, isn't it? I, you, I don't know if anyone has ever been there. I'm sure there'll be a few uh, listeners who have been to St. Ports and had to come into... Uh, contact with Andrew. He had he has one of the best pro shops I'd ever seen. I mean, it's just an incredible place. It's like a relic of a bygone day. Um, it's all very traditional inside, but there's still obviously a lot of modern stuff there. But it's when you sort of get into the back room and there's kind of like all these hickories lying around, and it's amazing. It's amazing thing about um, how golf used to be. Obviously, when he would have started um, as a pro, and obviously then you know a lot of what the club pro was doing was fixing people's clubs weren't they sort of reshafting them you know re-gripping and all that kind of stuff and there's all the sorts of relics of that in that pro shop of like benches and things like that and it's fantastic um and i do hope that as we go into the modern age i am a modernist in a lot of respects but i i do have a soft spot for that kind of um glimpse back into golf's past i just yeah i mean andrew reynolds is uh he i think he's He's like a proper, I mean this in the fondest possible sense, but he's, he's a proper club prony. I think he might even have a, as is, I think he's got a sports car. As is, um, as is John Green. Yeah. It's near a proper club pro, as is my own pro at Mark, uh, at, at York, Mark Rogers. He's been a pro for like, I think 30 years now. He's, a, um, he's got, um, he's very highly regarded by the PGA and he's just an absolutely super bloke. Um, so I think when I was, a, when I was a kid, I grew up at Louth golf club in Lincolnshire and our club pro was a guy called Alan Blundell, uh, kind of thing was his nickname because it, that was his little, he could not help himself. That was his conversational tick. He'd sort of go in and say, Alan, I need a new driver. And he said, well, good. Some of these, he was from Birmingham. It's a good, some of these kind of thing that, uh, they, they might help you with God, graphite shafting, uh, kind of thing. Anyway, um, and he had a he had an assistant called Jason Abrams, um, and this is like I don't know thirty five years ago in my life, and I still remember these people because they when you're a kid they are your absolute idols, and we sort of all sort of think very fondly about our sort of salad days, and I can I can still remember all the, the sort of the people I played golf with when I was thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, um, and obviously my friends. And uh, the golfers that I played with were sort of a big part of that. But the, the kind of club pro and the pro shop were sort of an equal part of that. Like we, um, you'd spend like hours and hours and hours in there, like picking up putters and putting balls on the carpet and kind of sitting behind the counter and just chatting to them about golf. Um, both those people in their respective rights were kind of like, they were like, they're like big influences on you because they, they kind of, 
well, Alan taught us golf for a start. And Jason was kind of, I don't know, he was like a kind of, he was obviously closer to us in age, but he was still like, he had a car for a start. He could hit it miles. Um, we all thought he was like the best golfer in the world, basically. I think he probably smoked. He was like really cool um, in our sort of, in our young eyes. Um, and they were, between them, they were sort of the heartbeat of the club. Like Alan used to do his golf ball draw on a Sunday. He'd come and ring the bell and draw names out of a hat and you'd win a sleeve of golf balls. And he'd constantly be organising like daft competitions on a Saturday. Um, he's passed away now. Um, but they, that is a sort of meaningful connection that you have with these people who are kind of, in your eyes, they basically at the club all of the time. Um, and I think that um, certainly in John Green's um, sense, like I think this is what I kind of wanted to say is I think a lot of the work that these people do um, kind of goes to a certain extent unnoticed. And I think there's a big, there has been a shift definitely in, in golf clubs to kind of trying to change the role of the um, of the traditional pro. And the, there's kind of various different models of doing it. People talking about bringing shops in house and people talking about having a kind of front of house person to welcome guests and members, but kind of move away from the kind of more holistic club close role of running a shop and giving lessons and all the rest of it. Um, and you, you just you just wonder how much of that is changed for change's sake how much is it how much is it driven by um a kind of like peeking over the fence like if we could just get control of the shop or if we could do blah 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 imagine how good that would be for the club and i would i just think that there has to be some element of stopping and thinking about all of the stuff that a club pro does they're there all of the time and i mean literally all of the time and goodness i knows how many hours the shop is open in the in the summer but they're covering an awful lot of daylight hours. Um, they're attending committee meetings and contributing to the running of the club. Um, if there's events on, they're kind of just doing longer hours to support, or there's more people in the shop to support that, that sort of big event that the club's hosting. Um, they're absolutely the face of the club. Like, you can imagine how quickly that can go wrong. Like, if you're having to interact with every single customer, that come, member or visitor that comes through a door, um over a kind of whatever 35-year career. I mean, how many people do you reckon you'd have fallen out with? I'd have fallen out with a lot. I worked in customer service for a long time, Tom. I worked in a petrol station from the age of 18 to 21. I've seen every type of person you can see. Um, never fell out with anyone. No, that's not true. It's not true. I did fall out with a trading standards officer. But that's a very that's a very different story. But I think, but I just think that that it, it is so important that sort of front of house job, and to have somebody um, professional doing it, and then you're into the sort of things that people do see, like the club pros obviously give lessons, and I think a lot of us kind of go down the sort of rabbit hole of like trying to go and find the local super coach who's got a track man and a um, and whatever else, and he's he's kind of dedicated to the latest swing guru that he's found on Instagram. But the local club pro is kind of there when members really need them, when they've got the shanks or when they're desperate for their sort of early season tune-up or they've found out they can't put anymore. And the club pro will be on hand to sort of um, be a kind of steady hand on their golfing tiller and get them back on the right track again. And that sort of thing I just I think is probably underestimated. Um, I just think it's an interesting thing that the kind of golf has had a way of doing this for a, a lot of years at private members clubs particularly where they've had a, cl a, a club pro on a retainer to provide the service and then the club pro is running his own little business 
alongside that and he staffs it and all the rest of it. Um, and it, the view is that that needs changing, I think, quite a lot. And it's one of those things where you wonder how much of it is change for change's sake. Wow, that's deep. Um, so I have seen both of these. Um, I've seen uh, a proprietary shop that is part of a business. I am currently benefiting from um, a very loyal and well-regarded Club Pro. So I've seen both sides of this. Um, there are pros and cons. I hate to sit on a fence, but I'm going to sit on a, I'm going to sit on a fence. It's also um, part of the pun, Steve. There are indeed pros and there are cons. Uh, that was an unwitting pun as well. I'm not gonna, I can't take any credit for it. Um, for some pros, I think that the ability to go in-house will certainly suit them because they are... In the cases that I have seen, and the number of clubs who've gone down this path haven't pay, who are not paying a re- retainer for a pro anymore, but they have brought pro staff, pro staff, pro shop staff into the club and made them salaried employees. I do think for some people that's very beneficial because it's a stable salary, um, because obviously revenue can be up and down. I think for some of those pros that have, that have struggled with the retail aspect of the business, there are some benefits there as well, because I think golf golf members have absolutely no idea of the overheads that a club pro has in their shop. I only have a little bit of an idea and it scares the living crap out of me. Um, you know, these, these, these people are buying these products. They're buying them out of their own business. If they don't sell them, it's their own business that suffers. Um, I don't think some clubs um, recognize that enough when they try and bring the retail aspect of a pro shop within the club. They think, great, we'll be making loads of money here because we'll be taking all the cash off lessons and we'll be getting all the cash from the shop. And then when they realize they're spending £100,000 or whatever it is on gear every year and we've got to October and all this new stuff's coming out, we haven't sold half of it because we didn't budget correctly because we didn't quite know what we were doing. Um then then there's obviously a relevant danger there. So I, I do think that um, it has to be what suits the business and what suits the staff the most. Um, I did sit on the fence there, didn't I? Well, I mean, you probably sat on the fence quite correctly that one, one model doesn't fit all clubs. I totally get that. Um, I just think that when you sort of look around at how, at how this is changing at various different places near here and various different places that you visit, um, you wonder how, how how much materially better it would actually be for that club. Um, I kind of What I do get is that I think amongst the PGA membership, there's an increasing number of people who are focused on coaching. Um, so that is kind of um, a, bit, a, a shift, I think, of people recognising that the club pros are kind of, uh, sorry, PGA members are experts in lots of things, but a lot of them are choosing to um, focus on coaching. Um, but they are, at the end of the day, like a population of people who've got a professional qualification, um, which are few and far between in golf, aren't they? Like the, the kind of the, ed- the education that you can follow. GCMA have their own education. CMA have their own education. There are golf uh, colleges out there that offer kind of um, golf qualifications. But at the end of the day, the PGA is producing lots and lots of people who are trained in the business of golf in a sort of very well well well-rounded sense and we need more experts don't we in golf at grassroots not fewer yeah yeah and here's where you are going to get me off the fence um because i i do think it is still a thing 
that um, the salaried members of the golf profession are the ones who are actually inordinately skilled at their jobs, whether it be PGA pros, or as you say, go through a long and expensive um, apprenticeship to learn those skills that they require, whether it's golf club managers who are obviously um, going through um, all of that education that the GCMA provides, or whether it's um, greenkeepers, course managers. I mean, greenkeeping is a science these days. It's not, you know, people, there are, I still hear some members say, we'll just cut the grass. I mean, it's an absolute science these days, what they do. These, these people are professors um, in grass. Um, so all the knowledge is in the sort of salaried class of, of the golf club. And they are very well-intentioned, um, I should say, but sometimes the lack of knowledge comes from the people who are actually employing those people. And, and you've got to take your... You've you've got to. I think you've got to let these people do the job that you bring them in for. They know what they're doing, so let them do it. And I still don't think. I mean, in a, in a proprietary club, I don't think this is the same problem as it is in a in a in a in a private members club because proprietary clubs are business; they are focused on profit, um, for good or else. Um, whereas at um, in private members clubs, and I've experienced this, um, there is still this sense, I think, of like the well-being of the club, the well-being of the members. Great. If all those things can work in tandem, then fantastic. But sometimes they can't. Um, and you've just got to try and make the best decisions. But we need to let the people who – we need to let the PGA Pro do their job. We need to let the golf club manager do their job. We need to let the course manager do their job. Polemic over. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's. I think. I think. I, when we set out to discuss this, I didn't kind of. I didn't kind of envisage that I would be um, making an impassioned speech for the club pro. But I think that is where you end up. I think in a sort of drive to kind of professionalize everything and kind of, um, what's the word? A kind of drive for profitability and, and investment and all the rest of it. That you kind of forget at the end of the day that golf clubs are not for profit and they're run by. Um, a lot of volunteers they're also run by people who asked to wear a lot of hats and I think yeah. that is kind of distilled down in the role of the club pro who is at once coach at once retailer he's contributing to decisions with the um, with the head of greens about what the course looks like he's contributing to conversations about house he's also like a mini marketeer and often they're you know, kind of communicating with members either electronically or face-to-face more than anybody else um, but that's what golf clubs need, don't they? Like the the small businesses where people are asked to like be jacks of all trades, and that's the kind of glue that kind of holds it all together. Same is true of general managers. Same is increasingly true of course managers, right? Um, but I just, I just think people, I think that some, and then there's the other side of it is like when you see people say, "Oh, we're going to give the shop to insert name of corporate entity here." that's not what members want is it so i I can talk about this with some knowledge because i've i've seen both um i've been a member of a club that had a franchised shop um it was franchised to snake and golf um and there are some pros about that you know from a member's point of view there are some really good things about that i mean you are not bound like we were not bound by stock you know a stock in the shop we could order anything that we wanted from Snainton 
with our competition vouchers and it would arrive for us. So, you know, our, our competition winnings, we were basically able to spend them at a massive retail outfit. Now, that was a real plus, I think, because you had the whole range of products available to you. And it would, it would never take very long to order them in. You'd sort of say, oh, I'd quite like these pair of trousers, but you haven't got them in this size. Can I order them in from Snitton? And they would take, they'd only take a couple of days and you'd have them. Um, so that was really beneficial because there is nothing worse. There is nothing worse as a member that's winning competitions. You go into a badly stocked shop and there's nothing to spend your vouchers on because you just end up buying balls and you just think, for God's sake, you know, it's really, really bad. So in that sense, to have um, to have that kind of massive retail arm at your disposal was a really, really good thing. On the other side, which I've experienced, obviously, with Mark Rogers at, at York, um, there is always a sense of the pro looking out for you um, that there isn't in that bigger retail environment. In that bigger retail environment, I just decide I want a set of clubs or I want I want a shirt or I want a golf bag and I just wait for it to arrive and it comes. Um, and it's a great transaction and it's seamless and it's easy. Um, but with the pro, you know, he'll often say, you know, I've, I've bought quite a lot of stuff from him over, over the couple of years I've been at the club. And he'll say to me, he'll ask me what I'm after. He'll guide me. He'll say, is that the right thing for you? You know, have you ever thought about doing this? I, I think golfers try and take advantage of professionals in that sense, because they're always looking for a deal. Um, and they're always trying to barter the price down. Mm-hmm. But I, But I do think it is also true that a PGA pro in that environment will look after you because it's in their interests to do so, to keep you coming back for return business, to keep you feeling like you're like you matter, um, like your opinion matters. I mean, I, I, I can't I can't talk about golf with the um, you know with the guy on the phone at Snate and Golf or whichever manufacturer it is. He or she might be happy to do that, but they've also got a job to do, right? Whereas the pro will engage in that kind of meaningless conversation with you because they understand the long game in terms of you they want you to feel welcome in the shop they want you to feel like you can sort of open your wallets they want you to feel comfortable well i mean and that that's i get that's kind of what i'm driving at it's like the this sort of clinical kind of oh we'll, we'll we're going to give the shop to an retailer and we're going to do this and we're going to do that like there's an awful lot of talk about why people are members of clubs at the moment um, and obviously people are joining things like iGolf, Handover Fist and all the rest of it. We've already talked about the survey that's demonstrating that there's an awful lot of golfers out there who aren't members of clubs. So one of the, 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 the reason that people join clubs is the people and the club pro and the general manager and whoever else, they're all, they're all actors in the play, aren't they? They're all sort of part of the scene. Um, like I take my kids up to the golf club and they, they they think John Green owns it. Are we going to John Green's, they say. They also think everything in the shop's free because it's all on my flipping account. Um, and he will kind of drop everything at a drop of a hat to give them a lesson. Um, and that that is, that, is a, that is a massive thing, like to know that you've got someone who will stand there for five minutes and while you say, and then I made a five, and then I made a six, and I three-putted the 12. And he will nod a lot and look interested. That there's there's <laughs> there's a huge thing in that. Um, so yeah, I would say uh, it's been a hell of an innings for people like John Green. Um, and 
I would hope that it continues in some form. I was thinking about this with um, not not he's gone, but with Gary Brown at Ganton, who's another pro who's been there for years and years and years. And if you go into the locker room at Ganton, there's um, like photographs on the wall of all the professionals that have served the club throughout its you know sort of hundred odd year history. Um, and the first thing that strikes you when you look on that wall is there are not many photographs because there are not there have not been too many pros in this club's storied history the people who've been there have been there for decades um and gary's part of a lineage that includes harry varden and ted ray i mean how amazing is that how fantastic is that you know these people are not for me they're not employees they're part of the culture they're part of the history of the club they're part of you know gary will be remembered remembered at ganton long after he's retired and and um you know, and gone on to new things because of the impact that he had at that that place, and that is the same, I think, for all of these kind of stalwarts. People, I mean, there's this people will remember Andrew at St. Ports for how, for, for yeah, yeah, forever. Yeah. They'll be yeah. talking, they'll be talking about stories about that guy forever. You know, yeah. when they went into his shop and the things that they saw there and the conversations that they had, and it it, it can't. I understand why clubs would go down this path. Um, to try and streamline the experience for members, to make it more efficient, um, to try and get maybe some of the perceived benefits of that. I understand if you give a pro a shop and they're basically, you, you perceive that they're making quite a lot of money out of it, rightly or wrongly, you might look over there and think, why aren't we, get, why are we not doing this? But it has to be, the experience at a golf club has to be about more than just surplus or profit it has to be about people it has to be about the experience otherwise it's just like every other financial transaction that we do in our lives well amen to that steve i think we'll stop there seems a good place to finish on a rousing note we didn't expect to end up there did we i don't think i mean all we need now is sort of last night of the proms playing (laughs) wave some flags around it's a bit like that isn't it anyway Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that uh, wide-ranging debate. Please do subscribe uh, to our podcast wherever you get your uh, podcast these days, be it Apple or be it Android. Um, please do write in. Please do comment on uh, social media about what you've enjoyed, what you haven't enjoyed, whether you agree with us or not. Someone said last week that I did good jokes. So there you go. But then he said, but then he ruined it by going, Steve. Um. So there you go. See you next week. You give with one hand, you take away with the other. <laughs> Cheers, Tom. See you next time.